0: The first reading is from John chapter 9, verses 1 to 23. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither did this one nor his parents sin. But in order that the works of God might be manifest to you, it is necessary for us to work the works of one who has Sent me, while it is day, night is coming when no one is able to work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he, others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man, but they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. The leaders of the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Our second reading this morning is also from John chapter 9, verses 24 to 41. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, though, that I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them i have told you already and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you also want to become his disciples then they reviled him saying you are his disciple but we are disciples of moses we know that god has spoken to moses but as for this man we do not know where he comes from the man answered here is an astonishing thing you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing they answered him you were born entirely in sins and are you trying to teach us and they drove him out jesus heard that they had driven him out and when he found him he said do you believe in the son of man He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see your sin remains.
1: On Thursday this week, the world took another step into the dark as we watch the assembled military might of Russia roll out across the Ukraine and as civilians flee their homeland, seeking safety across borders. Echoes of the darkest hours of the two world wars are hard to ignore. And as we gaze across our continent to those whose lives have descended into the darkness of war, I can hear an echo of the opening question from our reading today. Rabbi, who sinned, these Ukrainians or their parents, that they should lose from their lives the light of freedom and peace? And I'm sure we would want to echo in reply the words of Jesus that neither they nor their parents sinned. But before we go too far down the path of absolving ourselves of prejudice by blaming it all on the sins of President Putin, I do wonder whether we collectively as a nation need to do a little exercise in removing the log from our own eye, before pointing our fingers at the blindness we have identified in the eye of another. Like the Pharisees around Jesus, it is so easy for us to become blinded to our own failures whilst having clear sight of the failings of others. Now, it is too soon, I think, for a proper analysis of the causes of the current conflict in the Ukraine. And the focus at this time must surely be on prayers for peace and on actions of mercy. But history usually reveals that conflict is the result of multiple failures of diplomacy, relationship and trust. And it is certainly true that the rapid and strategic absorption of Soviet bloc countries into NATO has created at least part of the context for the events of this last week. And more broadly, if we consider our nation's response over the last few years to the vast people displacements from other recent conflicts, such as Syria and Afghanistan, and we could go on, it is also true that we have a shameful track record in welcoming those in need to our country, with the few who do eventually find their way to our shores often then mired in mountains of red tape, rather than welcomed to their new lives in the land of British care and opportunity. It's almost as if people believe that these victims somehow deserve their plight maybe for having been born in the wrong country or for speaking the wrong language or for having the wrong skin color. The sad truth is that prejudice and nationalism run deep in our British society, and they surface particularly in times of conflict. Now is the time for the followers of Christ to make their presence and voice known, offering a different narrative than the blame game. We will read written large across our media streams. So, for example, The Baptist standard reported on Friday, and I'm just going to quote this to you. Even while bombs fell around them, Baptists in Ukraine made plans to care for their neighbors who were displaced by a Russian military invasion, planning to establish centers of hopes at churches in each of the nation's six westernmost regions to shelter displaced families and individuals. They are also mobilizing churches along the most likely evacuation routes to provide care for people journeying from east to west. These are places where travelers can get food and rest and wash their clothes and receive spiritual care. And the European Baptist Federation with Baptist World Alliance support is even now working closely with the Baptist Union of Ukraine to coordinate humanitarian relief. light shining in the darkness. Well, I'm offering these observations about the events of the last few days, not to make us feel guilty, nor to undermine our opposition to Russia's aggression, nor to minimize in any way our solidarity with the people of the Ukraine, but rather to remind us that the darkness in the world is never simply over there in the hearts of aggressors or the lives of their victims. Rather, the darkness of sin, violence, prejudice, greed and selfishness is over here too. And it lurks in our hearts and in our society and in our actions. We have choices to make. Will we choose light or will we choose darkness? The whole world is under the shadow of deep darkness. We know this, it is a theological truth. We proclaim it every year in Advent. And we long for a light to shine in the darkness, exposing the deeds of night, banishing our blindness to the plight of others and lighting the path to a better way and a better day. Let's hear from John's gospel again. Jesus answered, neither did this one nor his parents sin. But in order that the works of God might be manifest in you, it is necessary for us to work the works of the one who has sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one is able to work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the gospel and it is a call on us as the people of gospel to work the works of the one who sent Jesus. So the lesson here is clear. Firstly, it is that we cannot, should not and must not blame others for their suffering. No one deserves to live under the shroud of darkness in this world, although many end up doing so. And then secondly, The works of God are made known in the world as the people of Christ, the body of Christ that is you and me shine the light of Christ's presence through works of justice and mercy and peace. Where is the light shining in the darkness to be found? Well, as I look around at the congregation of Bloomsbury and those who are joining us online, friends, this is us. This is our calling to be the light of Christ to the world. In solidarity with our sisters and brothers in Baptist churches in Ukraine, through the Baptist World Alliance, through the European Baptist Federation, this is our calling. This is our family. We are the light of the world in the name of Christ. And so we come to the story of the healing of the man born blind. As is always the case in John's gospel, there are layers within layers upon layers. This story of a healing of a man born blind is a sign of something beyond itself. It points to the presence of Christ in the world through his followers as a light to the nations shining into the darkest places to bring deeds of evil into the light. And whether this is in the Ukraine or here in London, the people of Christ, those who have already seen the light, are called to mirror the behavior of the man born blind by courageously bearing witness to the light we have witnessed, despite the opposition that such actions will inevitably generate. The thing is being a witness to the light of the world won't win you any popularity contests. Because the powers of darkness will resist any attempt to draw their deeds into the light of scrutiny. And this was as true at the time John's gospel was written as it is in our world of the 21st century. So if we rewind back to the first century, to the original readers of John's gospel, we discover that they were people who knew full well what it was to face opposition for their faithful witnessing to the light of Christ in the world. The early Christian communities of the late first century were challenging the ethnic boundaries of Judaism. And they were doing this by welcoming Gentiles into their midst. This then caused them to have to separate themselves from the worshipping life of the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues. The putting out of the Christians from the synagogues was a religious and ethnic fight. The opposition was the Jewish leaders of the synagogues who opposed on the grounds of religious purity the message of a Messiah for all people, whatever their ethnic origin. So when John's gospel casts the Jews and the Pharisees as the opposition to Jesus and his followers, we have to remember the context in which this gospel was shaped. You see, some have used these passages shamefully to cast a wedge between Christianity and Judaism. And the irony, of course, in this is that the intent in the gospel is precisely the opposite. The opposition are not all the Jews, but the Jewish leaders, precisely the kind of religious leaders who prize purity over relationship. And those Christians in our time who use this passage to declare Judaism obsolete fall into the very trap the Pharisees are critiqued for as they opposed Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. The light of Christ, John's gospel proclaims, is for everyone at any time, any day of the week, whatever your nationality, it cannot be constrained to one ethnicity, one religious group, one way of doing things. This is why Baptists don't say the creed. Rather, the light of Christ shines in the world. Casting light into the darkness, leaving those who have wedded themselves to dark deeds with nowhere to hide. This was the calling in the first century, and it is our calling now. And so Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. This is the second of his seven famous I am sayings that we find in John's Gospel. But the problem with a statement such as this, I am the light of the world, is that it's a pretty abstract concept. I mean, what does it what does it really mean for Jesus to be a light? I mean, you can't go taking it literally. I mean, he doesn't kind of stand there with light, you know, beaming from his face. Although, of course, Moses did. But anyway, one of the golden rules of sermon prep is that a sermon has to go somewhere. It has to have some kind of practical real world application. But the problem with Jesus declaring himself to be a light is that it doesn't at least not obviously go anywhere. So we'll take a moment together to unpack this and see if it sheds any light, so to speak, on the passage and our own lives lived in the light of it. Well, the first thing to notice, I think, is that uh, once again, as is his habit, Jesus is referencing the Hebrew Bible here. So in Psalm 119 verse 105, I'm sure you know it. We come to the famous quotation. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And this is surely in the background to what Jesus says about himself as the light of the world. Now, in the psalm, of course, the word that the author has in mind was the word of the Torah, the the law of Moses. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world, he's doing a couple of things. Firstly, he's casting himself once more as the fulfillment of Torah. We've seen him do this before when he spoke of himself, if you remember, as bread of life or water of life. Those two were symbols of Torah, as light is. And secondly, he is declaring that the light that he shines will be more than a light to the people of Israel. The light to the feet and the path of the psalmist becomes the light of the world, not just Israel. It is a light that illuminates all peoples. So this is then why we find the Jewish leaders making a bit of a point of comparing Jesus rather disparagingly with Moses in verses 28 to 29. They get the point he's making and they don't like it one bit. But Jesus isn't just declaring himself as the new Moses and the embodiment of Torah to all. Rather he then takes decisive action. It goes somewhere. To make real the implications of this declaration to the world. And this is where we come to the healing of the man born blind. The lucky beggar, as I like to think of him. And here we have a bit of a problem. Because we have to make a decision as to how we're going to treat him as we interpret this story. Is he a sign of something beyond himself? Or is he a real person in his own right? Now, the temptation is to spiritualise him, to see him as a a metaphor of the way Jesus brings light into the darkness and restores the spiritual sight of those whose inner eyes are blinded to truth. And this is a legitimate interpretation. It is, after all, what John's gospel does with him. It's what I've been doing with him so far. John offers this man as an exemplar, as a kind of model disciple, whose eyes are opened to see the world differently, who then embarks on a journey of faith and a new way of living in the world, a new relationship coming into being with his saviour Jesus. We see this in the way his restored sight then leads to a growth in his spiritual insight. So, near the beginning of the story, in verses 11 to 12, when he's asked who healed him, he simply says, Well, this man called Jesus, and then goes on to say that he doesn't know where to find him. But just a few verses later, in verse 17, the insight has grown. And the next time he's questioned, he says he knows Jesus to be a prophet. And then a bit further on in the reading, in verse 33, he tells the Jewish leaders that Jesus, who restored his sight, is the one sent from God. And then finally, a a bit further on still in verses 35 to 38, he acknowledges Jesus as the son of man as his Lord and worships him as God with a statement of absolute belief. You can see how he's a bit of a parable of somebody coming to faith. His eyes have been opened. His insight has dawned. Clearly, John's gospel wants all those who encounter the light of Christ in their lives to make this same journey into faith and belief. And the man born blind is offered to us as a metaphor for us to adopt as the darkness of our spiritual blindness gives way to something more glorious. As we discover the freedom from sin and selfishness that oppress us as we enter into a new relationship with God through Christ. Amen and hallelujah. The problem, though, is that doing all this reduces this man to a metaphor. He is instrumentalized in the cause of the gospel. And the reason this is problematic is that fictional or not, he still exists within this text as a person. And as such, he invites us to see ourselves in him and to see him in us. And if he is reduced to a means to an end, then that creates a world where the same can be said of others. And some of us have previous experience of the kind of Christianity which sees people as a means to an end. You know, where we're told to make friends with non-Christians for the sole purpose of converting them. Rather than as an expression of God's love in Christ for all people. Or maybe just because we like them. And it gets even more problematic when the nature of his disability is considered. His congenital blindness is used as a metaphor for sin. And his journey into sight after his encounter with Jesus becomes a journey from enslavement to sin into freedom from oppression. And it then gets even worse when you take into account the New Revised Standard Version translation of verses 3 to 4, which suggests that the reason for the man's blindness was so that God's work might be revealed in him. The NRSV suggests that his life of disability was so that God might heal him to create a nice metaphor for the spiritual journey of others. Thankfully, we can translate with the poor translation problem. The Greek in no way suggests that this was man was born blind for this reason. And the translation we used today, and I'm grateful to Roseanne for following it and departing from our kind of pew Bible reading. Uh, far more accurately captures the original intent by offering no reason for his disability and instead the revelation of God's works is located not in the man's blindness but in the transformation of those around him as they respond to his blindness. And in this, we come closer to the social model of disability, where a physical impairment is only a disability if the social world of the impaired person disables them for their handicap. I have preached a couple of times fairly recently on the theology of disability, and these can be accessed via our website and I'll make sure my links are in the blog post for today's sermon. And I would also suggest if you want to think further on the issue of how the church responds to those with disabilities, that you have a listen to the sermon by the Reverend Glenn Graham, a Baptist minister who was himself born blind when he preached here at Bloomsbury as part of our inclusive church series a few years ago. I'll put the link on my blog and I also note we've got Glenn coming back to preach here for our church anniversary in July this year. So I'm not going to go into disability theology too deeply now. But it's hard to preach on the man born blind without noting it. I want to make the point we cannot entirely gloss over the personal effect on this man of his encounter with Jesus. And we need to take seriously the warning against seeing anyone as a means to an end, particularly where faith is concerned. Too many people with sickness or disability have been told that it's somehow their fault that they've remained unhealed, possibly because of some sin in their life or because of their lack of faith. We need to hear Jesus saying clearly and plainly, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Sometimes life just is what it is and resists any attempt to assign blame or cause. Some people are born blind. They just are. Some people get sick and die early. They just do. Some people were born in the Ukraine and are now living in a war zone. It's not their fault. Some people are refugees seeking a new life in our country and they don't deserve this. The work of God is not revealed in some magical reversion, reversal of fortune. Rather, the work of God is revealed in the works of those who follow the light of Jesus, that is you and me. The work of God is revealed in us as we shine that same light into the world. Challenging all those who perpetuate oppression, prejudice and violence. The light shines in the darkness wherever the darkness may be in the Ukraine. In our country, in some of the systems of our world. And our call is to shine the light on them. Jeffrey John says, In Christ, the fullness of God's light broke into the darkened world, conquered death and offered us a new way of relating to God. The gospel is therefore above all a gospel of restored relationship. Our calling then as the people of God is to avoid the blindness of the Pharisees, who determinedly resisted seeing the truth of God's revelation that was before their very eyes. And rather instead, our calling is to praise the one who breaks the darkness with a liberating light. And to conclude a poem by R.S. Thomas. It's a poem called The Kingdom. It's a long way off, but inside it there are quite different things going on. Festivals at which the poor man is king and the consumptive is healed. Mirrors in which the blind look at themselves and love looks at them back. And industry is for mending the bent bones and minds fractured by life. It's a long way off, but to get there takes no time and admission is free. If you purge yourself of desire and present yourself with your need only and the simple offering of your faith, green as a leaf.
2: Thank you, Simon. We're going to have a panel yeah, conversation now. So Rosanne is going to come and join us and Tommaso is online. Hello Tommaso. It's good to have you. Hello. As your mic is on, shall we start with you? What are your thoughts this morning? Reflecting sure. On Simon's share?
3: sure. Uh, thank you, Dawn. And thank you, Simon, for your uh, inspiring sermon. I was especially uh, impressed and struck by the end of today's passage, when Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. And that made me think that sometimes overcoming physical disability, which is, I assume, a huge t- challenge for anyone suffering from it, can be paradoxically enough, less difficult than overcoming another type of blindness, uh, the blindness that stems from prejudice, bigotry and intolerance. Claiming to see, I'm afraid, is a very common experience. We all have a tendency to hold on to our beliefs, to resist arguments that contradict and upset us. And to be persistent in our course of action, uh, whatever it is. And sometimes that stubbornness may be justified and even vindicated by uh, subsequent events, but it also has costs, including our ability to seriously and constructively engage with other people's views. And so to conclude, and also to to go back to one of the key points made by Simon, I think that's absolutely true. Physical impairment is only a disability if the social ward of the impaired person disables that person. But there is also another completely different kind of blindness within us we need to be aware of and perhaps that we can do a lot to address with the help of God. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it it puts us in mind of another healing story, right? Of like, what is it easier to do to say that this man's sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk, right? There's that, yeah, which, which is harder, the the overcoming of our own prejudice. I think, yeah, Roseanne.
0: Um, It's been a fairly dark week and (laughs) we've got some friends who've got family in Ukraine. And I think it's hard to be able to to give them that reflection of light that we we come here each week and we we feel the love and we we look to the light and it's hard sometimes to be able to reflect that to people when they're in such a dark place but you feel helpless and all all I can say to our friends is we will be praying for you I'm writing to my MP I'm donating to causes that will try and give practical support to people who there in Ukraine but um, it's it's been quite a bad week it has yeah
2: it has been a, a full-on week yeah I always think of, of love is not like the way to love is there is not one way of doing it is there yeah. I think you when I mean, you mentioned a few there of like writing to your MP writing to your elected representatives like right loving through prayer when you feel like you have nothing else to offer loving through giving and action and I think as well I was writing down and being minded of um, some of the things we're looking to do over the next year of being that prophetic voice of speaking out through theology, speaking out through art and creativity. And, and love has many facets, doesn't it? I, I don't know, I just, um, is there anything online on the chat that would be good to share?
1: Uh, we've got some comments from Jeff uh, so I'll just read those. Um, I, he says, I'm concerned that the countries that have had uh, been the most rejecting of Syrian and other refugees are now being the most open for Ukrainian refugees. So do we celebrate that newfound generosity or condemn them? Uh, And uh, are we similarly lacking in anti-racism? He makes a couple of other points, but uh, the question at the end, which was written first, the Torah or the Psalms? um, I think it's a bit of both depending on, to answer your question, Jeff, depending on how you date these things, but probably Torah predates the Psalms on the whole.
2: Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I've been really, I think I have found my indignation ignited this week with um, there is nothing wrong with putting a Ukrainian flag on your profile picture. But I noticed that many of these people did not put a flag for Yemen or for Afghanistan or for um, any of the other countries. And there is a hypocrisy in our response to this. Um, and I don't think that that is saying that we don't stand with those from Ukraine, but actually we need to, again, recognize this blindness that we have in ourselves, in society that has not responded equally to others that have been suffering. And that is also to call that out as an act of love. Um, yeah, I am I, my brain is very full at the moment of a number of things. There are others, there's other stuff happening this week that has been horrific. Um, I know that Martin is going to be praying for this, but the, the, the trans youth legislation that's happening in Texas is tantamount to child abuse and it's horrific. This is the world that we live in and the world that we are called to be light in and it is difficult and it is hard. And so let us come together as a community and do that. I think I'm gonna ask Martin We've got a song first and then I'll ask Martin to come and pray for us all.
4: I would confess that um, these prayers don't necessarily feel like they come from a place of solid faith. I've struggled to bring these words together because of my own doubts. But I hope what is said this morning will be of help and trust that it will be able to articulate something of our united experience this morning. The inspiration actually came for them from the words of uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine, who said on Friday night, this night will be difficult, but morning will come. Let us pray. God of all with alarm and concern, we bring before you the military intervention in Ukraine. In a world you made for peace and flourishing. We lament the use of armed force. Not just in the Ukraine. But across our world. Where there is conflict. But as we are overshadowed once again by war, we lift lift up before you the innocents and vulnerable, the victims of violence and cruelty, along with all who continue to sow the seeds of hate. In the fog of war, where truth is the first victim. May your light. Which cannot be overwhelmed. Expose the truth. Grant to world leaders and all in positions of power today. Not only the wisdom. But also the courage to do what is right in your sight. Grant all who turn to you, your strength and fortitude, your inner peace, along with a continuing of faith in your sovereign power, in the face of military might. And so we hold people on our minds in prayer this day. The peoples of Syria. Of Afghanistan. Of Yemen. We pray for those in Texas where legislation has been issued that parents whose children identify as trans will be criminalized and prosecuted for child abuse. We pray for those who continue to work on frontline for NGO staff, And we pray for ourselves. Holy mystery, silence presence, uncertain bearer of all the weight of it all. In these quiet moments, we listen. We listen for the still breathing, still breathing, whispering, creator God love of our lives. We listen between the cacophony of distraction pulling us towards untruth and falsehood. We listen amidst the shrill cries of desperation. Through the tumult of these days we seek assurance. We seek the fulfilment of a promise, a promise made to ourselves. A promise to those we have been stretched to call to call neighbor. A promise written and enshrined and yet unfulfilled. Help us abide in mystery to hang on. To hold on when all is in question. When all is in doubt. Help us to stay firm to our own commitments and our own promises. Lead us back into connection back into the bonds of humanity that help us to know that each other, we are beloved. May we continue listening. May we keep watch. May we beckon love and justice and mercy. May we hear your voice and may we all know that we are part of your circle of love. We pray these prayers in the name of our risen Lord, Amen.
2: Be of good courage hold fast to what is good render to no one evil for evil strengthen the faint-hearted support the weak help the afflicted honor all people love and serve the lord rejoicing in the power of the holy spirit amen